If you went to a summer camp as a kid, then you probably have memories, really good, uh, sweet memories of summer camp. So summer camp is a really challenging environment this summer uh, because of COVID. And so uh, I, I know that some camps are making it happen and still kids are making memories there. But I have memories of some summer camp that are mainly around trying to devise plans for escaping summer camp. And, uh, and I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that, that my summer camp memories are mainly how can I get away from summer camp and get back home. And I, I, my mom came across this letter that I wrote to her as a nine-year-old that will probably help kind of capture the sense of my heart when I was at camp. And... Um, I have it up on the screen, actually. There's a picture of it if you guys pull that up. Nine-year-old, so don't judge my handwriting. Okay, I don't know. I didn't, it was, I was doing my best. And uh, I clearly had a lot of control over exclamation points, okay? They are all, they're kind of an exponential scale. So read that, knowing that. So it says, dear mom and dad, I miss you very much, double exclamation point. I cry all day, triple exclamation point. I want to come home bad, so does Wes quadruple exclamation point. That's my brother. I've written to the other people. She pre-addressed notes and letters that I could write. I wrote similar things trying to explain, trying to kind of get an escape plan going. I wrote to the other people. I'm crying. Why did you leave me? I love you, triple exclamation point. I miss you so bad, quadruple exclamation point. I'm in every activity that Wes is except one. He couldn't get away from me. Um, I try to stay with Wes the most. I can't throw up, which I guess I was trying to induce that, and feel bad sick and the nurse won't do anything. I cry myself to sleep. They won't let me call you. I love you more than anybody. Sincere, sincerely, William. And, uh, and so that, I mean, that was what my parents were receiving from their child, uh, basically like a hostage note, you know, like, hey, get me out of here at all costs. And, and I was trying to do the same thing from my own end. It wasn't just these letters. I was like scoping out my environment. There's a horse named Blackjack. I'll never forget Blackjack. That wasn't the horse I got to ride during horseback activities. That was the horse that my instructor was riding because I was kind of gauging which one I thought would be the most responsive and able to make it back to my house. I was like, Blackjack is the only one here who's gonna break out of a walk. Okay, so he's my hope. In the field, in the woods where you would ride, there was a sign that pointed towards Houston. I was like, I guess I'll just get him at night, go to that spot and ride that trail till Houston, I guess, and find my way home. And, uh, and so that was my, those are my summer camp memories, was basically how to get home. And that's because I was a really intensely homesick kid. Was it, you can see that, I have proof that I was an intensely homesick kid. Now, you may not have been homesick or maybe currently are homesick like I was, and I hope for your parents' sake that you were not. Um, But as a human being, here's what's interesting to me. I already know that somewhere in you is this longing uh, to be somewhere. That in your soul, in the deepest parts of your heart, there is a longing to be somewhere. That there's a longing for something in your soul. Just I know that about you because you're a human being. And as a kid, it wasn't my physical home as much as it was my parents. That's what I was really trying to get back to. That has aged in me where I can still miss my, I still miss my parents, but home for me is actually where my wife and kids are. I'll go any, on any trip in the whole world, like I'll go anywhere in the world as long as my wife and kids can come with me. It's easy. It's an easy yes for me to go on that trip. Uh, but if you ask me to go somewhere without them, it is very much like Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler, Armageddon moments where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, just a lot of tears. My wife's like, hey, you're just going 
for a night somewhere. So ease up, pal. And I'm like, I just can't handle it. Um, and so, because that's where home is for me is actually with them. So that's matured. And it might uh, look, your, your homesickness or what you long for might look different than me. Uh, but it's not that different all across the board. I, as human beings, there's a spectrum that it doesn't really deviate that far from. There's a character named Tom Haverford. And uh, Tom Haverford's a character in a show called Parks and Recreation. And um, it's kind of like uh, The Office, except a little bit more warm and happy and less awkward. And, uh, and so Tom Haverford, he find, he, he's this guy who's just all, throughout the course of seven series or seven seasons of this series, he's over, just trying and trying and trying to become something. He's got these dreams and ambitions, and he's always pushing and trying to become this version of Tom Haverford that he thinks is going to make him feel like he's at home. And uh, he gets to this point in the seventh season and he has uh, most of those things and he's, uh, he's sitting there and he says, I was the first person ever to have money, power, and notoriety, but still feel empty. Now it's written as a joke. Like the writers of Parks and Rec wrote that knowing that you would laugh. When you hear somebody say, I was the first person ever to have power, notoriety, and money and still feel empty. Because we know that it's so true. Now, if you don't have those things, it's really easy to think, well, I'm just going to climb to that level and maybe then there'll be something on top of the mountain and, or, or at that kind of uh, level of the stratosphere. But, but you have people who climb to the highest of heights and they look back and they're yelling back to you, there's nothing up here. And so human beings, we have this homesickness in us. The resting state of the human soul isn't actually a state of rest, it's a state of longing. Do you recognize that in your own heart? The, the resting state of the human soul is not actually rest, but longing. And in fact, I would wager that a lot of the regrets in your life have a lot to do with you trying to satisfy that longing or numb that longing. So if you just went back and cataloged all the things that you regret in this life thus far, so even if you're 10 years old, it might not be that long of a list, but your regrets, and over time those will become, come into sharper contrast, but they have a lot to do with you trying to satisfy the longing of your soul or numb the longing of your soul. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know where or what you are longing for the most? I don't, we don't have enough time. I'm, I'm on a t kind of a tight clock here, so I don't have enough time to just let you sit and marinate with that. But I hope you will. That maybe somewhere during this week that there will be some kind of a pinprick of longing that comes up in you and you will recognize just for a moment, this is, this is where my soul is kind of triangulating my longing to really be this place this person, this thing, what is it that you are longing for? And it's important to know that because the redemption, this, this redemption that we're talking about, we're in a series called BC, the history of redemption. And that redemption, studying the Old Testament history of a redemption as it unfolds, that redemption isn't just a rescue from something. Okay, if you read through Exodus, you're like, hey, you guys, we're at Exodus 40, we were at Exodus 12 last week, we missed this huge thing where all these Israelites get pulled out of slavery. Why didn't you teach on that? Well, because it's not just getting pulled out of something, it's getting pulled into something. That's what redemption is. It's not just a rescue from something, but into something. And so the life that you are longing for, so I, what I know because of the scriptures and how they kind of open up the human soul, what I know about you 
is that actually the longing of your soul, the deepest longing of your soul, however you might be trying to satisfy that, is ultimately in God's presence. And that because of Jesus, this is where we're going to go today, because of Jesus, you never have to be homesick again. That Jesus is your home away from home. Okay? So the way I'm going to try to get you to that place is we're going to see where it is that you're longing to be, where your true home is, see what's keeping you from being there, and how Jesus has made a way into home for you. Okay? So we're going to work our way there. And to fully grasp this, I've already mentioned this, but to fully grasp the the book of Exodus, you have to understand that it's not primarily about them being rescued from slavery. It's not primarily about that. It's about rescuing them back to God, to do what they were made to do, to worship God in his presence. That's what Exodus is primarily about. If you don't believe me, just count up all the chapter numbers, okay? There's 40 chapters in Exodus. 25 through 40 is centered mainly around the construction of of a building, of a tent. Most of this the airtime, the bandwidth that Moses is giving who's writing this, he's not spending most of it on this part. You know, you get all these plagues and you get all these, this rescue, this kind of amazing stuff and it gets pulled out and then it's like, I'm gonna spend the bulk of our time here because this is what this is about. It's not just rescuing from slavery but into God's presence to worship him. And so we're talking about this tabernacle, a portable temple. And if you read this and you're like, man, that is such an ancient kind of like outdated, silly thing to do to have these temples. Like most of the temple pictures I see when I think of a temple, I actually think of Southeast Asia and these really elaborate temples that just are kind of like spread all across everywhere. And you're like, okay, that's, they're all old. Okay, that's what's true about most temples is that they're old, right? But the reason, it's not because worship or the idea of temples is outdated. It's particularly that our Western culture, Tim Keller points this out, that our Western culture is the one that finds temples strange. But up until this point in human history, the temple has not been a strange thing. It's actually been one of the most obvious things to people because in order for this world to have meaning, there has to be some other world that's uh, instilling meaning in this one. So there has to be some other connect, there has to be some connection point to this supernatural realm. And that's what temples ultimately are. That's what a tabernacle would ultimately be is a connection point with the supernatural. Do you, do you kind of grasp that? The idea that this temple thing is a touch point with the supernatural. And it's only in this Uh, this kind of part of human history that we think and we've come up with this idea that we can have meaning apart from the supernatural. But if you're really kind of chewing on this, the the guy who actually invented the, the, um, uh, the, how do you say that, mechanical heart, the guy who invented that, he has a quote where he talks about if you really think about uh, the fact that we don't have, that, that there's no other supernatural, that, then he says there is no meaning in this life. We have the same basic rights as a virus, is what he said. Now, he said this a while back, which becomes really awkward when a virus is going head-to-head with human lives all over the world. So who do we think? Or do we have any reservations about killing the coronavirus? Is there anybody's like their kind of conscience pricked by that? Oh, guys, I don't know if we should really take this thing out. It's, you know, it's got, it's got rights. No, we don't ever say that. We say, no, we got to, whatever we got to do, whatever kind of immunization, whatever kind of science is going to come up with to take that thing out. We, if there was sort of a nuke for the coronavirus, we would drop it today. Right? And so there's this problem 
with us saying there is no supernatural, there is no place that's instilling meaning in this world, because when you really think about it, that means that this world is meaningless. And we know that's not true. You know that's not true. In your soul, you know that this life, that you, the people around you are not meaningless. We have meaning. And if heaven is touching earth somewhere, I want to know where that place is. Do you? If heaven is touching earth somewhere, I want to know where that place is. Okay, and so Exodus chapter 40, you're like, well, let's get there. Okay, we're getting there. Because well, you got to see that Exodus 40 is the climax of this story. Okay, that it's, it's the climactic moment. Moses just finished putting together the pieces of the tabernacle. Okay, so he puts them all together. And then we read this. What Bailey read earlier, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now read it slow and read it twice with me. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I think we can read this. And if you're honest reading this, you might say, is that it? That's it? That's what, it's like a cloud and then a, a glory? After the burning bushes, the blood rivers, the epic hailstorms, the midnight escapes, the high-speed chases through a splitting sea. Mountains quaking, fire, lightning, trumpets blowing out of nowhere that just are deafening. We come to this moment, and this is it. Now, I think the problem for us is that it's a two-dimensional reading of the text. That's what happens, I think, a lot of times when we read history or we read ancient things. It's really easy to read them two-dimensionally. And so I just want to call you into this to see the fullness of that moment. This is the God of all those moments that I just talked about, about blood rivers, burning bushes, epic hailstorms, splitting seas, all that. This is the God of those things coming into a particular place coming into a particular place. This is the terror and wonder that descended on Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses and all of the Israelites, they, when they saw it, they backed up and said, hey, Moses, why don't you go, man? We don't really want to go up there. This is that God descending into a particular place, into a tent that some people built in the desert. Okay, this is what's epic about this moment is that it's heaven on earth. The instructions for the tabernacle are written actually to reflect the work of creation. If you go back through those Exodus 25 through 40 and you read how uh, God instructs Moses to go about building it, he instructs him in seven uh, commands, right? Not accidentally related to these seven days of creation. I think it's six commands and six days of creation and then the rest. Okay, so he's, he's doing a work of creation. And, and at the end of that, right before what we just read, it says Moses finished his work, which is almost identically identical to God finishing his work in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, and so what is this temple, this heaven on earth? What is it? What is that place? Is it a place for God to live? Is that what we're saying the temple and the tabernacle is? Is it a place for God to live? It's not that. Okay, Acts 17, 24 through 25 says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples uh, made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what we get from that is that it can't be that God was like, man, I'm just looking for a house, kind of on HGTV, house hunters. Can anybody hook me up with a tabernacle in the desert? I'm really looking for some Sinai real estate or something. 
Like, that's not what God was doing. He was not like, I need a house. Can you build me one? Because I can't do it myself. God would say, I can build whatever I want to. I built this whole planet and universe that you can't even find the end of. So certainly I don't need you to build my house. It's a touch point with heaven. That's what the tabernacle is. And for us, what I need you to see that is, is that's our home away from home. That homesick longing that you have, it's only gonna be satisfied there. Not because it's geographic location, but because of who is in that tent. Okay, in Genesis 1 and 2, heaven, on, heaven was on earth. Okay, so if you go back and read that, read it through that lens and understand this is heaven on earth. And then Adam and Eve were sent out. Uh, and have you ever wondered why we haven't been able to find it? At the end, they walked out of this garden somewhere. And so my thought is like, guys, can we just rally GPS, whatever we gotta do and find this place? Because that's where I wanna be. Even though there's a cherubim and a flaming sword there that's gonna be problematic, we'll get to that later. But still, you gotta wonder where to go. Is it like Wakanda? You know, the Black Panther story where uh, Wakanda is this invisible nation, is it kind of like that? I don't think it's exactly like that, but there is a chasm that exists between heaven and earth now. That's what's reflected in that story of them leaving Eden, is that now there's a chasm that we can't cross. Where we are now is different than where we were made to be. And C.S. Lewis, I know he gets quoted a lot, guys, because he has a lot of good things to say, so... He said it better, so I'm going to read this quote about this longing, not just in the human soul. Think about this for your own soul. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, which is sort of this pulling back or romanticizing something back there, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy. You're not crazy. But the truest index for our real situation, that nostalgia, that homesickness in your soul is actually the truest measurement of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. See, you feel that ache. I feel it, you know, when I felt it was... um, I was sitting in Hanalei Bay, and I was looking up at the mountains of Kauai. If you spend like 10, many, 10 minutes with me, you're going to know I want to be in Kauai, okay? And I'd see there's these two waterfalls way up on the mountains in Kauai, and I would look at them, and I'd stare at them, and I didn't just want to stare at them. I wanted to be in them, and I didn't want to just be in them. I wanted to drink the water. I wanted it to get in me. It was so beautiful. Do you know a place like that? Have you ever seen a place like that? Or we know that whenever we actually come across uh, some really famous person, somebody who has a lot of acclaim, a lot of fame, you might play it cool because they're not famous to you. Like I was able to do this one time. I was, with, I was talking with some friends and this, it was, I was post-college. So I was like a young adult somewhere in there. And a young adult friend of mine, she all of a sudden just bolts like, like something crazy is happening. She's, she, Usain bolts over to this spot. Just a whole crowd of girls actually just takes off running. And I come to find out, she comes back and we we're like, what happened? You know, was there like some free food over there or like cash or what, what was over there? And she said, one of the Jonas brothers was over there. 
And uh, which is hilarious now because it's like they're trying to make a comeback and they're not even that famous now. But here, you, you have this reaction. I actually had, I, you, you will kind of like, you know, forgive the phrase. I think it's fangirl, you know, over somebody. And uh, I did that over John Piper, actually. My wife watched me after Piper preached at something and I, I was just kind of watching him, seeing if anybody was gonna talk to him. And I was like, nobody's talking to him, you know. And, um, and she's like, you can go talk to him. And I like went over and I shook his hand, but it was everything I could do to not just hug him, you know, because I just wanted to hug this man I love. And um, from afar, he doesn't know me. And that's kind of the awkwardness of fame is that you desperately want to be close to that. And then you will find yourself trying to build an association with that person. I thought this was just me. This is just human beings. We want to be close up to the famous one, known by them, associated with them. And that longing that you're feeling, those longings, they're not, they're not wrong. That desire in you is not wrong in its initial stages. It's wrong in the object that it pursues. That's where we miss. And so if you think that God's presence isn't what you really need, maybe, maybe if you're like in your cynical moments, you would just say, it's kind of like just JP, J, JV therapeutic treatment for weak people. If you're not saying it, you know who is saying it? Your neighbor, your coworker, your friend who is not all about following Jesus is looking at his presence and saying, I think I could take or leave that. And here's my question for that, for that response, either in you or in the people around you, in us when we come across that maybe the doubt that God's presence isn't really, really made for. How have our modern attempts at fulfillment gone for us? How's that going for you? How are your modern attempts at finding satisfaction, fulfillment for your longing, how's that going for you? The dangerous thing is, honestly, you could probably spread that out over a, a series of decades, and you could say, well, right now I'm just chasing a claim or a, a status at my workplace, you know, and then my workplace kind of gets boring, and so now, like Tom Haverford, I'm looking for somebody who I can kind of bring along in my life who can accompany me with that, but then I'm going to get bored with them, and then eventually uh, now I'm actually trying to get status in my uh, city, or I'm trying to get this lake house, or I'm trying to get this thing, or this thing, and this thing, and then they put you in the grave. That's how that goes for you. Our modern attempts at fulfillment are not um, somehow better informed. They're the same things as human beings have always been doing. And Matt Carter, a, a preacher I love, he said it this way, you'll never be truly fulfilled. You, you will never be truly fulfilled until you're doing what you were made to do. And maybe that would just give you some peace of mind about why you're not why are you not fulfilled in the season? Why is there kind of an ache somewhere still in your hearts? Because you're not doing what you were made to do, which is worship God in his presence. The object of your desire, don't forget where we are, we're in Exodus 40. The object of your desire is found in that tent. The one you were made to be known by came and filled that tent. That's why it's a big deal. That's why this whole thing is a big deal. But do you see the problem in verse 35? It says, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we have a big problem here. And kids, if you're tracking with me, you should be able to recognize big problem. Everything you were made for right here 
not able to enter it right here. This is a problem for us, okay? And so the very thing you were made to do, be in the God's presence, the pinnacle of human experience, Moses, who is by all accounts probably a better person. I know he's a better person than me. He's more faithful than me. He's done more. He wrote the law like he knows the rules. He's, he's not able to get in. And actually the tabernacle itself was designed to show you that. There are these barriers. If you look at the picture that you're drawing kids, if there's a picture on there, there's these, there's these kind of like concentric circles, but they're not circles that, keep you, that bring you closer and closer and closer. And those all represent barriers. Okay, there's barriers to God's presence, which is found in the Holy of Holies. Um, and the Passover, the Passover kind of visualized our salvation, rescued underneath the blood of a lamb. This visualizes that we are not safe in God's presence. And that's the problem. It's not just that you can't get in. It's that if you got in, you know what would happen to you. You would die right then. Death on contact is the consequence for presence or being in God's presence, which we are made to be in. And this is not a popular view of God, right? Everything Bailey said is true, but it's going to be true in one particular place on the cross, okay? But until you have that point, we have this unpopular view of God because we want to save God. We want a God who supports our agenda, a God who answers our prayers but doesn't require anything of us, a God who does what we want him to do, which is in fact not a God at all. It's not a popular view of God, and the problem is, is that's that's not the view of God in the Bible. That's not who God says he is. So the instructions for the tabernacle are super clear. You will die if you are not careful. You will die if you are not very, very careful. And not just careful. You can't go in unless under a very set of strict circumstances. And even then, it was only once a year. And it was only one guy who was going once a year. And he was going for a very specific reason. And it wasn't just to hang out with God. It was to offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. That's why he was in there. And so this is what keeps us separated from a holy God, is that ultimately we're made to be in his presence, but sin is keeping us from being able to enter into it. Do you see that? It's not just that you're a bad person. It's that you were born with a heart that cannot triangulate and worship him. Your heart is an idol factor. Your heart is going to look for and try to worship creation, kawaii, or a person, somebody famous, or yourself. It's, it's going to try to find and, and identify an object of worship, and you cannot find that object of worship apart from God's grace. Okay, so here is where we're at. We have a home away from home, heaven on earth, but we can't get in. And that's how things were for a really long time. That's how things were for a really long time. You see in, in verse 36, it says, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so in a lot of ways, this is good news because God's presence was going with them. If it wasn't going with them, then Moses said, we're not going. Okay, so in a lot of ways, it's really good news. But this, this state that they were living in of being right up next to God's presence but not able to enter in was how they lived throughout all those journeys. And even after they, uh, after, if, you, if you track with the story, uh, when, when they get settled into a new land, you know what they do is they actually build a permanent tabernacle called a temple. And God's presence fills that temple. And if, if you follow that, that story, the, 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 the 
it's, it's twice as big. So that temple is literally a huge, beautiful, magnificent thing. And it's the center point of worship for all these Jewish people. Okay, that's the center point of worship. If you don't believe me, just look at whenever they get, they, you know, they, they get exiled out of the promised land. When God brings them back into the promised land, you know what they build first is not the walls around the city, it's the temple. Because they said, unless this temple's built, unless God's presence is here, we got nothing. It's the most important thing for their worship is this thing because they know that God's presence is what they need the very most. And this is why it's Jesus' words about the temple that are ultimately the reason that he gets killed. Do you know that? Jesus said something about the temple, and they quoted it in his trial. Matthew 26, 61 says this. This man, this is in Jesus' trial. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And they said, nobody's going to talk like that. We're going to kill you for talking like that. And it's precisely because this is, this is the hinge of this whole thing for you. Where this whole thing turns for us is recognizing that it's precisely because the temple was torn down that we can now enter in. And what I mean by the temple is the same thing that Jesus meant by the temple. The, the text tells us that it was his body that he was speaking of. And so look at Mark 15, 33 through 38. Just listen and imagine this in your mind. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, um, that's like 3 p.m. or tw uh, noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And some of the bystanders heard it, hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then look at this text. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. You know what that temple, that curtain was? It was the dividing line between the Holy of Holies and everything else. The one place that we could never enter into. And somebody from the top took that thing and tore it apart. You think that was just like a neat thing for God to do? Think that was a random act? This was the most declarative statement that God could make. Hey, there's no separation now between us. You can come in now. Because Jesus wasn't talking about a building when he said, you can tear it down and I'll build, rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about the temple, which is his body. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the center point of all your worship. Something greater than when the, the touch point of heaven with earth. Something greater than that is here. He's talking about himself. Why, that's why in John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to this woman at a well, this, a Samaritan who had differing ideas of where they should worship, Jesus says it's not about that mountain or this mountain anymore. Why? Because he says it's not about a place, it's about a person. The epicenter of our worship, listen to me, our home away from home is found in Jesus. The answer to our problem wasn't be better. 
you can't do that. You can't earn your way into his presence. The answer to our problem wasn't killing goats or killing bulls and sprinkling their blood on stuff. That wasn't the answer. It only, uh, it only pushed things forward until one day somebody would come and offer a sacrifice that would allow us once and for all to enter in. This was Jesus' whole point. Our longing, our homesickness won't be cured until we are home. But because of Jesus, uh, he is our destination. Our, in, in the meantime, we, of, of, so yeah, we will one day be back at home. But in the meantime, home is with us. He is our touch point with heaven. The life you're longing for, your home away from home is with Jesus. Which, if you're thinking about that, that should bring up this like kind of problem in your mind because you're like, but he left, right? So where's home away from home now? It used to be in this temple, and that's, that's not where it is. It's in Jesus. Okay, well, where'd Jesus go? Well, he left, but he, he sent somebody. And so his spirit now lives in us. When you have put your faith in Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus, that's not something that just you came up with, an idea that happens on your own. That is the Holy Spirit working in your life to say yes to trusting in the only hope that you can have to enter into God's presence, which is Jesus. And that is proof and a picture of the Holy Spirit working in your life, which is God's presence coming to dwell in you. And so now we individually and corporately, this is what the scripture's saying, we are living stones being built into God's house. Individually and corporately, we are portable temples of God because Jesus is our home away from home. And Jesus, he makes his dwelling in us. And so what are you supposed to do with this? Kids, adults, what are you supposed to do with this? I'm gonna tell you three things to do. Don't hide, don't divide, and don't turn back. Don't hide. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, okay, now into God's presence himself, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, your high priest and his sacrifice is good. Okay, you don't have to worry about that. So verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God's throne of judgment has become a throne of grace for you. So do not hide from him. Do not hide parts of your life from him. Don't section off your job. Don't section off your income. Don't section off your marriage. Don't section off your parenting. Don't section off your neighbors. Don't section off anything in your life from God. All of it now is meant to be in his presence. And you can let all of that live in his presence, okay? Because you don't have to hide or fake it with God. He already knows. And his spirit is making you into this temple that is worthy uh, of his presence. Okay, so don't hide from him. That's actually the only way that you're going to change is through his grace working in your life. If you don't have a grace-based relationship with God, you will never change. If the basis of your relationship with God is not grace, you will never, ever change. You might kind of be able to manufacture some things, but at a heart level, you will never be different. Because of Jesus, you can draw near. If you look back at my note, do you remember my note? There was something intuitive about my little nine-year-old self that picked up on something. You know what I did the whole time I was at camp, the whole time I was in this place of homesickness? I stuck with my big brother. I wouldn't, I, you just, it was annoying. Hey, I'm in every activity with Wes except one. They probably wouldn't let me in that one. I'm sticking with my big brother. So do not get disconnected from him. Draw near to him. 
Stick with your big brother and everything will go well for you. Don't divide. Okay, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. I wish we could. The, the reality is, is that you become a uh, temple of God as his Holy Spirit dwells in you, but then you're also, we are being built into a temple of God as a house of God through our connection with one another. That's what makes the, uh, that's the amazing thing about the local church is that we are now together becoming this temple. So we need to not divide our relationships. Don't let uh, unforgiveness linger in your relationships, okay? Care for one another, love one another. That's why Jesus says, he wanna know how you're gonna be my house, my temple. It's all about how you interact with one another. The last thing I'm gonna tell you is just don't turn back. So don't, don't hide from God. Don't divide with one another and don't turn back. There is this sense that we can live our lives kind of in this stream, of, this stream of life, always facing backwards, trying to swim upstream, trying to hold on to these moments and carpe diem. And it's exhausting. You can have a forward-facing life because you know where you are going. Because our ultimate home is not here. This is our home away from home. Lucy, my daughter, um, she keeps telling me, she says, I want God to come to our house. I want God, and she means it like, I want God to walk in our house, you know? Like, I want to see him and touch him and be around him. And I do too. And his spirit is with us, but you got to know he's also getting a room ready for you in his house, is what he says. And so this is not where, this is not our destination. So we, we, don't, we don't turn back. We keep on moving towards Revelation 20, uh, 21, 22, which says, and I saw no temple in the city. That's our forever home kind of city. I saw no temple there. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I'm just going to read this last quote to you to try to convince you to not turn back. And uh, Matt and, and Pam, you guys can come up. This is from Narnia, so forgive me, I just stuck on this Narnia hit, you know, trip, but uh, this is in the last book, which is called The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, and this is towards the very end, and this is actually captures my kind of understanding of, of how actually our homesickness is going to play out one day, and uh, it's this quote, it says, I've come home at last, this is my real country, I belong here, this is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up and come further in. And so in your lifetime, it doesn't mean you can't do cool things or experience good things, but it means that no matter how high you climb, you will not climb home. Jesus brought home to you. Home is with Jesus now and forever. And so let us not turn back from following him. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, um, we can. We can just be really cynical about temples and tabernacles and what seems like maybe these ancient people just kind of trying to figure it out on their own and just doing what they saw everybody else do. But we, we, we know this to be true, that your presence is it's, it's the home that we're longing to be in. It's the thing, the ache in us is for you. And so uh, as we sing these songs, especially this song of be near, God, I'm praying for us that you would be near and help us to know your nearness. Would hearts that are in living rooms or uh, in cars or somewhere not even outside of the space, would they be met by your Holy Spirit today? 
and crushed with the love and the grace that God has brought his presence to them when they can never make it on their own to you. Would you convince hearts today that feel so far from you that you are near to them? Would you do that in this room? Would you help us to respond and worship? Not to get to you, but because you have come to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.